Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. We're here on the campus of Howard University, and we're asking people, when was the last time you learned a new idea that challenged the way you see yourself or the world around you? In class last week, my professor was discussing the idea of radical self-care, as introduced by Audre Lorde, that self-care doesn't mean that you're lazy, but it's rather productivity. If you're not pouring into yourself, you can't help your community or the people around you. So I'm actually a transfer student. I wanted to go to Howard straight out of high school, but everybody was pushing me to go to PWI. It wasn't until my best friend kind of sat me down, I realized that that was such an invalidating opinion of HBCUs. Yesterday during class, we were having a discussion about the systems right now that are a direct consequence of racist policies from 200, 300 years ago. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. Here's the thing about new ideas. The best ones, the most consequential ones, they are often hard to take in. They challenge us, and not just intellectually. They call into question things we hold dear, or that make us feel comfortable, or they just seem obvious. The sky is blue, and the earth is flat, until someone points out that it is in fact not. New ideas that are of consequence are often hard. And Black people in the United States have very often been the bearers of new, hard ideas for everybody. Kianga Yamada-Taylor has brought some of those ideas forward herself. Her 2019 book, Race for Profit, introduced many readers to the idea of predatory inclusion, or the ways in which the financial sector enriches itself by preying upon Black ambitions. That book was a finalist for both a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award, and she's just founded a new magazine called Hammer and Hope, dedicated to ideas from and about Black politics and culture. But Kiaga Yamada-Taylor is also a professor of African-American studies at Northwestern University, and as such, her entire field of study is currently under partisan attack, not only in Florida, but around the country. The field is articulating a set of ideas that some are finding very hard to take in. She joins me to talk about this moment, about the power of ideas, and about the new magazine. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, thanks so much for taking time. Thanks for having me. The term Black Studies has been bandied about broadly enough that I'm not sure that many people using it actually know what ideas it represents. And and I'm not being shady there, honestly, like maybe me included. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's level set. What is Black Studies? Black studies, African-American studies, Africana studies, um, all of these kind of different nomenclature 
uh, are really efforts to uh, capture the ways that the history uh, experiences, culture, lives of Black people, African Americans, Black people uh, throughout the diaspora, so not just African Americans, um, what our lives are about, what constitutes them historically, culturally, um, politically over time. Um, and so in, in some ways, the teaching of, of that uh, happened in different iterations throughout um, the process of higher education in um, historically Black colleges and universities. But it really wasn't until uh, the late 1960s that the study of Black life um, became part of the curriculum uh, at predominantly white institutions. Uh, and that was a direct result of the kind of Black insurgency um, that exploded in the aftermath of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. in the late 1960s. And so part of that was a demand of Black students um, to understand the dimensions of their lives and history um, at school, to learn about uh, themselves uh, in, in school in ways similar to uh, how other uh, people would learn about their own cultures and history um, in school. And so Black Studies was really... Uh, an effort to define um, what that would look like as part of a as as part of a curriculum, mm -hmm. but that comes out of a much larger political movement. And black studies is as a course of study, as an inquiry, it is distinct from African American history uh, oh, as a course of yes. study. And can you just help people understand that distinction? Sure. I mean, African American history is about the kind of people, places, and things that populate the existence of uh, Black people in the United States from um, 1619 thereabouts, uh, you know, usually sometimes it's from to 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation is, and then from 1863 to uh, the kind of contemporary period. That's usually how uh, African-American history courses break up uh, that time period. Um, but that's very different from African-American studies, which also uh, not only looks at history, so history is an important part of that, but also looks at politics. It also looks at economics. It looks at culture. Uh, it is not just concerned with the experiences of uh, African-Americans or Black people from the United States, but it's really looking at the dimensions of Black life uh, from what, what we refer to as the diaspora. So uh, people who originate in Africa, but end up in places all over uh, the Western Hemisphere as a result uh, of slavery. So it is interested in the lives of Black people in Latin America, Black people in the Caribbean, um, Black people uh, in Europe, Black mm -hmm. people uh, in Canada, uh, in North America, Black Mexicans. Um, and so it's much more expansive than just the kind of um, uh, historical view of 
uh, what happens to black people in the United States from 1619 uh, until the 21st century. And embedded in that, you know, if I can push it a little, is it, it, sure. the idea is that there is an analysis involved in black studies, right? I mean, which yeah. is not to say that there is an analysis involved in African American history, but I, I, help me with the language. Um, but there is there is a step beyond this is the black experience when you talk about studying black lives uh, globally. Well, I think part of it... Black studies are very contested. So there are different ideas about what it should be, what it should be doing. Mm. Should it be um, educating Black people uh, and, you know, people sympathetic to the Black uh, struggle for freedom, uh, to be activists, to be involved in in politics? Uh, Should it be mostly uh, thinking about theory? Uh, Should it be mostly um, historical and and so black studies is is very uh, contentious and contested um, among those of us uh, who study it. But I think you know part of what it is trying to do is understand the ways that black people have suffered disproportionate uh, effects of oppression uh, and exploitation. Where does race come from? What is the relationship between race? Uh, and the overrepresentation among African Americans, among Black people more generally, uh, it, the overrepresentation of us among the impoverished, the underhoused, the under-resourced. How do we understand that? Um, and so there is within historically within the field of Black studies has been um, a kind of belief that this knowledge analysis, understanding is not just for itself. It's not just for, you know, knowing information for the sake of knowing information, but how do we employ that in an ongoing political, social, economic struggle uh, to get free? Um, Because we see, you know, from the police killings, the continuation of police killings, uh, the way that Black women are overrepresented, Uh, among those who suffer eviction, all of the social categories that we look at, the social uh, barometers that we determine uh, what is the quality of life um, in this country and beyond, you know, should we be involved in a a, a political struggle um, to change those? And and so there are certainly some people uh, who are in the field of African-American studies that believe that. Other people believe that, you know, this is an academic field, but I think most people um, agree that it's not just about stating facts and figures. It is about trying to understand um, how Black people came to be overrepresented in in these categories that represent uh, oppression and exploitation. And and having said that, you know, if we're, we're in this political moment where this field of study is being defined by some as a threat, and yes. I kind of wonder if, like, are they right? <laughs> you know, yes. I mean, I put that to you, like, is is it in fact a threat to the status quo? You know, I think any information, um, that which makes us more intelligent, understanding, empathic, um, clear about the world that we live in is dangerous uh, for for those who are interested in defending the status quo and those who are interested in not rocking the boat. That means that history is dangerous. It's not just Black history uh, or African-American studies that 
um, these people don't want to talk about. Uh, they don't want to talk about any of the histories of struggle and resistance um, against the uh, kind of dominant forces uh, of society. But I do think that there is something particular in this United States um, about the power uh, of Black studies, because I do think that any engagement with the history of Black people and the kind of attendant ideas that come out of that history, if you want to talk about Black studies writ large, really begins to shatter the uh, mythologies that the United States has constructed itself upon. If we are, are, are to believe that uh, this country is the kind of paradigmatic example of what a democratic nation is, of what a just nation is, of what a free nation is, that all unravels, it all falls apart when you include the history of black people who came here as slaves, who were enslaved for more than 300 years, and then after slavery faced another 100 years of legal subjugation. So almost 400 years mm -hmm. of legal uh, subjugation in one form or, or another, either as slaves or as second-class citizens, then the whole notion of the U.S. as an exceptional place, uh, as exceptionally democratic, just, and free, completely unravels. And if that unravels, then perhaps when Black people make claims for reparations, that maybe it has some truth to it. We need to take a break, and we're going to come sure. back to this. I'm talking with Northwestern University professor of African-American studies, Kianga Yamada-Taylor. After a break, we'll talk about the new magazine and about more about the power of these ideas in social movement. Stay with us. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments about what you're listening to, we at the show would love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button a little bit down the page that says start recording. Finally, you can message us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with Northwestern University professor of African-American studies, Kianga Yamada-Taylor. We're talking about the power of ideas and social change and how threatening the ideas in the field of Black studies have been to some because it does, in fact, challenge the status quo. Listeners, we can take calls from those of you who are, like Kianga, educators 
curriculum that explores race, gender, inequality generally is now very much at the center of partisan politics as Republican candidates have focused intensely on schools at all levels. And I'd love to hear how that reality is showing up or is not showing up in your classrooms and and how it's impacting your work. If you are an educator and you want to chime in on this, or if you have a question for Kianga Yamada-Taylor, you can give us a call. Uh, And Kianga, as a student of ideas, I want to ask you um, to think back, if you can, to how you discovered Black Studies. Like, can you recall the sort of moment of discovery where you were just like, you know, when a new idea grabs you and shakes you uh, and, and excites you? Can you remember that moment for yourself in this field? Well, you know, I am Black, (laughs) Um, and I grew up with, both my parents were uh, educators. Um, My mom was was not a a teacher, but uh, she was an educator of educators, Um, and my father is a a historian. So, you know, I grew up, in that sense, I grew up with Black studies. I grew up in a uh, house with books that celebrated Black people, um, Black history as a, you know, small child before I uh, was reading, but books that were read to me um, were about African-American history. And so I think probably when I began to think about these things um, sort of on my own, you know, there's like fourth grade, um, we were asked to write a little paragraph or something about Abraham Lincoln. And I asked my dad about it. And, you know, my, my, my father was very colorful, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a racist dog, you know? <laughs> and, and so, you know, but I brought this up in the, the small paragraph that I was supposed to be uh, writing for school. There was a conference that involved my mother. Uh, you know, my, my mother calls my dad because my folks were separated at that time. And all I remember from their conversation is she's nine years old, you know. <laughs> so so I, this, this kind of, you know, history and ideas um, in some ways ha- has always been uh, with me in one uh, one form or another. I've always been fascinated by yeah. um, Black history. And then, you know, I, I began to understand Black studies as much more expansive. Um, when I went to graduate school, I got a PhD in African-American uh, studies. And that's, I think, when I began to understand it as a much more expansive right. field just beyond uh, the history of African-Americans. I don't know what it is about fourth grade. That is for me also learning that I think it's the civil war yeah. starts to come up in civics class, yeah. you know, and you're like, wait a minute. I don't know. Something's not right about the way this is being talked about. I can't quite articulate yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, what about it challenged you? I mean, if I, part of the premise I've laid out here is that like new ideas uh, of consequence are challenging. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of ideas in black studies that are challenging to black people too. Um mm. What about it challenged you? Um, really, for me, and I, I would say probably this is common for a lot of uh, Black Americans, is realizing that you're not the only Black people in the world. <laughs> I mean, there's a way in which living at the center of the empire, you know, you kind of take on the um, the empire sensibility that you are the center of the world mm-hmm. uh, and that your experience is the most important one. And so for me, um, it wasn't so much a challenge. It was a discovery that 
there is a much more expansive diaspora. I mean, I knew there were other black people right, in the right. world, but that have distinct culture and politics uh, that flow from their experiences, but that we all got on this side of the world uh, through the institution of slavery. Um, and so really understanding the diasporic nature of black identity um, in the United States and beyond was uh, revelatory mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think continues to be revelatory for a lot of African-Americans, certainly yes. for me, you know, every time I travel the world. Yeah. Uh, you are one of the scholars in this field uh, whose work has been specifically targeted as mm-hmm. too political for the classroom. Um, and when you hear that argument, just that basic point, you know, that you're, this is too political for the classroom, this is indoctrination. How do you respond to it? And I'm thinking now specifically about yourself. Um, how do you respond to that? Well, all education is political. Um, and I think when Ron DeSantis and people in the Republican Party uh, are talking about history, what they don't like are the politics of uh, some of the people who are uh, writing history, writing about politics, uh, writing about culture. Uh, And they want to replace that history with history that they like. So, you know, Donald Trump in the twilight of his presidency commissioned uh, what he called the 1776 uh, Commission, uh, which was to uh, to basically come up with a version of American history that uh, he and other evangelical Republicans liked. And so that portrayal of history is replete with with politics mm-hmm. um, and a, a particular vision uh, of what American history is. And so they don't mind that. They just don't like this other version uh, of, of history. So all, all education, what you decide to include, what you decide to leave out is political because we're all political people, uh, whether we are actively engaged in politics or whether we are passive uh, about it, meaning that we all have uh, uh, viewpoints, we all have ideas. So that, to me, goes without saying. Indoctrination uh, is a different kind of accusation, because indoctrination uh, is really about uh, excluding uh, versions of history, excluding ideas, um, and really trying to drill uh, a certain set of uh, politics a certain way of thinking uh, to impose that on students uh, and to really discourage thinking, discourage any kind uh, of engagement. Um, And that is certainly not what I or any other educator that I know talk about. And, you know, personally, I have a very clear uh, kind of uh, approach to to teaching. And I tell my students that, you know, I don't talk about my, necessarily talk about uh, my political commitments, uh, but I do tell my students that my job is to help you learn how to think and to figure out things. And I don't need you to think like me. I don't want you to think like me. I want you to think for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that that's, that's an important element. Uh, of teaching. And that's why you'll hear many of us talk about the most important thing you want to leave a student with is the ability to think critically. And all of this kind of history that uh, myself and people who have been excluded from this college board list are engaged in are are critical analyses 
uh, of history, of culture, uh, of politics, of social norms. It's not indoctrination. It's, it's thinking critically and not just accepting uh, at face value what we are told, but is really looking underneath. And that is what it means to be radical, mm. right? The, the Latin definition, root of, of radical, is root. It means what is underneath. Mm. So, yes, that is what we are trying to look at, is what is underneath, not just what you see in front of you. Not We're trying to teach people mm. not to take at face value what you see, but be curious, yeah. interrogate. Ask questions. Think critically. You you mentioned the College Board, um, and just so that we loop everybody in, your work was amongst those that were removed from the final version of the AP Black Studies class uh, that has been in the news. Uh, this is following Florida Republicans' challenge to its existence in the first place. Yes. The College Board has said revisions it made to that course were not a response to the challenge from Florida Republicans. It was just part of the normal evolution uh, of a course from a pilot to an official curriculum. Um, and you have expressed skepticism about that, um, that explanation. Uh, so do you want to speak to to why you why you were skeptical of that explanation? Well, it's just simply unbelievable. Um, <laughs> you know, I I can believe that, you know, perhaps they didn't change the entire uh, curriculum and excise uh, the particular authors and, and writers that they did because of Ron DeSantis. But uh, this attack on Black history, Black studies, uh, has been going on for uh, a few years now. Um, the, what began with the 1619 um, project that then turned into uh, this kind of nonsensical attack on uh, critical race theory uh, that then turned into attack on AP African-American studies. I think that uh, clearly uh, the college board uh, saw the writing on the wall and understood that there would be a right-wing backlash because this has happened before. Uh, they revised the AP American history, U.S. history uh, curriculum in uh, in 2014. And the Republicans also had uh, a backlash against that. The Republican National Conference held uh, voted on a resolution denouncing the college board and the revisions that they made to the AP U.S. history uh, uh, course. And what did the college board do? They backtracked and they, you know, deferred to the uh, hysteria created um, among Republican uh, circles from the RNC on down. Uh, and they backtracked and they took out many of the changes that they made. So there was a history of this, that this is a political, uh, it, it's a body that is sensitive uh, to the politicization uh, of AP because they're trying to sell the the course uh, to the states. Let me, with that in mind, let me ask you this, and I don't want to belabor this because there's a lot sure, to get to, sure. um, but, you know, I, as we talked about this on our editorial team, we got distracted over and over again by the presumption of any kind of advanced placement course being a good idea from a racial equity perspective um, that, you know, why is it, why do you have to be in a certain lane in order to get this level of education? Can you just speak yeah. to that briefly before we move on to, to something else? Yeah. I mean, there, there's a larger discussion to be had about uh, advanced placement courses uh, and who they're available to. I think that nationally uh, somewhere between four and 9% of uh, black high school age students 
actually take uh, AP tests or take AP courses. AP courses have been used uh, to really uh, kind of create tiers uh, of access to high quality uh, education um, in, in public schools across the country. So there is a, a, a question to be raised about uh, AP and why is this curriculum being developed uh, for a very small stratum of students? Uh, and why are we not talking about uh, how the, the study of uh, African-American uh, history, black life in general, uh, is taught in, in public school? That, that is a larger discussion to have. Oh. I'm all for it. Let's go to Fred in Minneapolis. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm just um, listening and in, in, in really enjoying the conversation. And I just spoke with one of your teammates about I'm working with my kids, which are middle school kids. Um, and we are delving into the West and the notion that cowboys were typically white, which was not the case, and going with, um, after enslavement, the uh, development of cowboy culture, and the second syllable on that word, cowboy, how derogatory a term that was, and then with that pushback that um, the original horse, experts are really coming up from Mexico with the Spanish and indigenous people and just the misrepresentation that's out there, the absent narratives that we don't hear. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fred. Uh, absent narratives that we don't hear. Um, that is, I'm going to use that to segue into uh, Hammer and Hope because we're running out of yeah. time and I've not saved enough time to talk about the magazine. Um, but speak briefly to Fred's point about the absent narratives that we don't hear in education um, and why we don't hear them. Well, you know, I, I think that there's a history of student radicalism, student activism uh, in the United States. That's how we got something like uh, Black Studies, African-American history uh, uh, in, the, in the first place. And it's empowering for, for students. They want to know about where they come from and who they are. Uh, and how they got here. And and more importantly, they want to understand the circumstances in which they live and how those developed. Uh, and that is why these ideas are dangerous. That's why this history uh, is dangerous. And that is why the most powerful people uh, in the country are trying to stifle it and suppress it. It is a sort of, you know, electoral trick. And, you know, we don't want to talk about uh, social programs or spending, you know, so we will uh, divert people's attention by talking about um, black studies, but there's also something that they fear about uh, teaching these sorts of ideas, this kind of history oh. um, in class because of the way that it empowers the students who are recipients of it. I think they know that. And and I, I will apologize that I've managed the cock poorly, so we don't have a ton of time now to talk about this awesome new magazine. But in the couple of minutes we've got left, what is the, what is the within this context, what is the mission of Hammer and Hope? So Hammer and Hope is a, a new magazine that um, I have created with uh, Jen Parker, who is a former uh, staff editor at the New York Times. And uh, what we wanted to do uh, was create a, a space within um, the kind of wide ecosystem of, of publications to talk about uh, Black politics, Black culture, Black activism, and really how we changed the conditions that helped to propel uh, millions of people in the streets uh, in 
2020, a couple mm. of years ago. And one of the, the magazine came out of discussions between Jen and I uh, in the aftermath of that, that were frustrated uh, about uh, how did we go from 26 million people thereabouts in the streets uh, to the Biden election and then the Georgia Senate races. And that was kind of it. Right. And so uh, how what processes needed to take place to turn that anger and activism uh, into organization and to prolonged uh, uh, political engagement uh, to really change the reasons why people were pushed into the streets uh, in the first place. So that that's why we created this forum for uh, people who are engaged in those uh, struggles, for activists on the ground, for organizers on the ground, to be able to communicate with each other. We are going to have to have you back to talk in more depth about <laughs> everything that comes out of it. Hammerandhope.org is where you can find it. Kiaga Yamada-Taylor is a professor of African-American studies at Northwestern University, a contributing writer to The New Yorker, and co-founder of the brand new Hammer and Hope magazine of Black politics and culture. Thank you so much. Thank you. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, later this week, we'll put a longer version of the conversation with Misty Copeland in our feed. So check it out. You can also follow us on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Mixing and music by Jarrett Paul. Milton Ruiz is our live engineer. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us. <laughs>